I'm sick of it. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of this. Of what? Health. Health. I'm sick of health. Sick of health. Hello. You are listening to the Sick of Health podcast, brought to you as usual by the team. We have Dr. David Wright. Hello. And Rob Littlewood. Hello. And we are bringing to you the fourth part of the Sick of Isolation coronavirus mini-series. Um, and I think, uh, most people, if you've been listening to the other episodes anyway, you'll know what we're going to discuss this time, as we've been talking about it for a couple of episodes. And that is looking at, slightly, slightly less sciencey, I guess, this week, but looking at different countries' approaches to tackling the coronavirus and kind of how that's going. And I think both David and myself, definitely, when we started looking into this, we were, quite, we were definitely excited about it. Started looking into it, and it became apparent it's a fairly tricky one to tackle right now. There is obviously a lot of countries doing a lot of different things, a lot of information, a lot of unanswered questions and not many answers. Um, and it's also mm-hmm. all muddled by that, despite kind of countries saying we are taking the advice of the scientists, there's definitely a lot of underlying political motives and agendas that muddy the waters even more. Yeah, people are using it to push their own established opinions to kind of yeah, exactly, further exactly. their agendas. I think even as Rob said in the first episode, the Chinese virus, as Donald Trump refers to it as, <laughs> tells you just how political it can be. Um, but as well as that, also really difficult to compare countries, which I think, it, David, you kind of looked into a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what we're trying to understand here is which strategies, what are the different strategies different countries are undertaking and um are any doing better than anyone else? So, and a lot of people have been covering this already in the media, kind of comparing different numbers, whether it's numbers of tests being done, hospitalizations, positive cases, or deaths. And all of this is kind of fraught with um, misleading information and kind of, like we were saying, people using them to push already uh, their established agendas. So the first thing you need to look out for when looking at all these different comparisons are what are the numbers? So just to take deaths, for example, in France, death figures are including ones in care homes, whereas in the UK, it's only including hospital deaths. So even if you think you're comparing two like-for-like figures, they're often reported in different ways. So it's, it's quite misleading. And then on top of that, how do you define what's a coronavirus death? Because it's not always black and white. They could be played a role in the death or they might have had an underlying heart condition or something in this was just one of the contributing factors. So again, it's not always the main thing that's on someone's death certificate. So that makes it even more complicated. And then um, another aspect which makes it difficult is the quality of the numbers coming through. So I think, as we mentioned before, how, how good is each area recording accurate data and is it in their interest? Rob was mentioning before, and that can you really trust data coming out of authoritarian regimes like China or Iran where it's not always in their best interest to to say the god's honest truth and then there's other numbers even relevant that you're looking at i mean there's um uh if you can't just look at absolute numbers of deaths because china is way bigger than uh lithuania so you don't want to just look at that absolute amount so you want to start looking at population um per capita 
death per capita. But that on its own, again, doesn't take into effect population densities and other things we mentioned on um, previous podcasts about demographics and why it might be hitting the ethnic minorities more because they might be living in multi-generational households or the types of jobs people have. So basically, we're getting tons and tons of data and a lot of it is fairly meaningless at the moment until you can actually sit down and get all these variables out of the way and work out what is that what is it actually telling us and i guess so now we've done our our due diligence due diligence and caveated everything <laughs> we're gonna do we're gonna do exactly what you say you can't really do and compare all the countries approaches because that's what we're interested in so in in terms of comparing different approaches well in terms of comparing countries we're going to start with with different approaches and as we said each country's although there's similarities doing things in slightly different ways but we've tried to boil it down to the simplest possible kind of options and we've kind of it seems there's broadly speaking two different approaches which is mitigation and suppression which will kind of i guess go into more detail in but the easiest way to explain it we found was through this kind of nice little analogy which is based on comparing it to a highway speed limit to see what you think of this so it says if you're setting the speed limit to 10 miles per hour you might save a lot of lives but a huge cost to efficiency and sanity set it to something a bit higher like 40 miles per hour you could still save three quarters of those lives but still allow for a semblance of normality and transit to continue does that make sense does that yeah kind of yeah so it's, I guess it's saying that that suppression is what we're seeing in a lot of places with, and there's different ways to go about it that we'll go into, but almost the full lockdown kind of viewpoint um, where you're cutting it down to 10 miles an hour. And then mitigation is the other option, which we're not seeing too much, but it's kind of a middle ground, I guess. Um, and what, Rob, what do you think about in terms of the uh, save lives aspects of it? Because I guess that translates directly to the coronavirus in terms of the different approaches, saving lives versus um, time, to, time to getting back to normality and effect on economy. Um, for one, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that the US are getting it really wrong, racing <laughs> yeah. back into trying to get back to normality i think i i was chatting to someone about this earlier and i think it probably is an underrated point that um that it will have an effect on people's sanity i think that if they carry on with the full-scale lockdown for too long people will just say screw it Mm -hmm. and start risking it and kind of ignoring the rules um which is probably even more counterintuitive than maybe easing it um yeah, definitely. That's that's, that's it's some of the things. Difficult lines to toe, obviously. Yeah, it's difficult lines to toe, obviously, because if you aren't clear enough about how the restrictions are still in place, people might consider it too much relief and then get too carried away. Um, from I don't know. I I see that it. I see the benefit of of the saving lives thing. Um, it's a real it's tough a one. It is tough at 10 miles an hour, but like it's hard for me to not look at countries like Sweden and think either the situation over there isn't really that bad, which I find hard to believe, or they're being a bit too lax about it. And I feel like they're probably putting people at risk a bit. Mm-hmm. It's a really tricky one. And it's kind of hopefully we'll, we'll 
we'll, we'll revisit the question at the end and see if we change our minds, I guess. But David, you got, you got any other thoughts or should we dive into the countries? Yeah. Well, I mean, the flip side of all that, even though you're saving more lives, I guess you are taking away um, civil liberties a little bit, which definitely counts for something and also damaging the economy a fair amount. So a lot more people who are on the breadline are going into poverty and that's going to have its own healthcare adverse health effects. So you might end up damaging people in another way. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that black and white and yeah, there could be long-term repercussions because of it. It's outside coronavirus infections. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, but let's, let's, let's kind of dive into it in more detail. So if we start with the suppression idea, and a few cut and a few example countries so i guess the obvious thing with suppression so suppression is that 10 miles an hour where you're trying to completely stop the spread of the virus and therefore stop deaths um so the obvious kind of way of doing this is the the full lockdown that we've seen across a lot of countries there's a few countries that have done it particularly well and um a couple of examples i've got here is singapore and hong kong and it's definitely, mm -hmm. definitely a trend that some of the Asian countries that were affected by previous epidemics we've talked about, so SARS, MERS, um, have responded a lot better, a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently because they've had those issues in the past and therefore built up the infrastructure to be able to respond. There's no reason why other countries couldn't have learned lessons from them and done the same, but we haven't seen that. Um, but yeah, in terms of full lockdown, Singapore and Hong Kong it seems they've done a pretty good job. I don't know where they, I don't know where Singapore is on your world on what to rob. So um, I'll find it quickly, but I did read a really interesting article on the BBC about, um, yeah, they're right. They're way down, mm. way down. They literally have only had one new death. Really? Um, in the last day, total deaths, 12. Unbelievably. That is unbelievable. Given, unbelievable. given where they are. Yeah, they so I heard that they were just really prompt and really urgent. Mm -hmm. Um, and their contact tracing was apparently out of this world. One person who was interviewed by the BBC was saying that they just received a phone call out of nowhere and yeah. they said, Were you at this location at this time? And they were like, Yeah, and they were like, You need to come in and talk to us. And you came in contact with this person and they tested them straight away. Yeah, um, and then asked about who else they've been in contact with and where exactly they went so they can track down everyone who was, who was there. And yeah. they said if it, if it carries on, then it's going to become too hard to do it so manually. But it doesn't look like mm -hmm. it has carried on accelerating that much more. Well, this is, this is the other key aspect of the, the suppression tactic is the testing and tracing. Um, and again, Singapore and Hong Kong are kind of examples where they did everything. They did the lockdown and they did the test and trace, which clearly like unbelievable in terms of the effectiveness. And the speed is obviously crucial as well. Yeah. Um, but then there's other, there's some other, so I, we've heard a lot about South Korea being like an example. Yeah. So they've kind of, they've gone for the suppression approach, but without needing to do full lockdown because they've done the full emphasis on the test and trace. And their, their kind of testing policies um, and the infrastructure they set up for testing has been amazing. Everyone always quotes them as like the, the front runners in terms of testing. And then as you say, um, in terms of tracing, they implement various different strategies for tracing, which is pretty, like anyone who gets it, obviously they isolate them straight away. They'll then ask them where they've been, but they'll then also track them using the mobile phone data and GPS data. And then they'll post that 
information to anyone in that area so they can see if they might have been in contact with them and then they can get tested. And I, have get... A, I have a comment on that one. I heard that that was getting quite a few people into trouble. <laughs> Apparently they were texting <laughs> people saying, um, were you in the vicinity of so-and-so strip club or like motel <laughs> at this time? And people have been caught out for like having affairs and things. And really? it in the information they provided over text <laughs> people who had been nearby that's amazing because they um you know on um if you have google maps and i accidentally had the feature turned on or whatever where you can have the timeline and mm -hmm. it it tells you it's it's actually it's kind of it's mad and it'll pop up every now and then saying what you've just said like were you in this place and then you can rate it if you want to and then you can review your month's timeline and it shows you everywhere you've been Every minute, so every scary day. that isn't it yeah. so i as soon as i saw it i turned it off but this is kind of a key point that asian countries are supposedly a lot more open and committed to the digital surveillance so the majority mm. of their people will have stuff like that turned on um and they're kind of more a lot more accepting than western countries so the tracing aspect is a lot easier over there which partly explains why it's been so effective um but definitely mm. Definitely interesting. And then the other one was um, the other interesting one um, that followed similar suits to South Korea was Taiwan. So, an interesting comparison with Taiwan was so Taiwan apparently has the same population size as Australia. Um, and they got it obviously both islands. So, in terms of restricting travel, similar and kind of Taiwan's even closer to the epicenter, obviously. And um, I think this was from April 5th. I got these. So Rob, you can update us maybe, but Australia was on 5,000 confirmed cases and Taiwan was only on 400. I mean, considering the population density as well, hmm. so I mean, Taiwan's tiny and urban compared to Australia. Exactly. And that's, as you were saying at the beginning, that population density should mean it spreads yeah. more easily. Right. So they've obviously yeah, been getting yeah. something right. And again, it's a similar model to the South Korea one. They were, they were super prepared after SARS and MERS. So they acted really quickly. Um, and they've just done this testing and tracing to the max. And they even, they've, they've done so well, they kind of stopped exports of face masks, prioritizing for themselves. But since then, because, no, they've, no. Done, because they've done so well, they've now donated 10, 10 millions, tens of millions to other countries because they don't need them which is wow. pretty, so, pretty darn good. In response to your, your comment about numbers there, um, as some of us might well be aware, and obviously there was the government briefing um, not long ago um, from when we were recording this, the UK's on just over 18,000 deaths. Australia's on um, 74 deaths. Really? Yeah, that's not even new deaths, that's total. And Taiwan, do you guys want to take a guess at what that is? I... My, my, there's a guy who lives in my flat, he's Taiwanese, and I think he said like 12 or something. Six. Really? Wow. I mean, that's incredible that, for that's where incredible. they are. Yeah, that is incredible. Again, so, is that reporting accurate though? <laughs> <laughs> but I think death, deaths is more, deaths is a more accurate thing to look at than cases, right? Because cases depends on how much testing you're doing. So therefore, cases that's why it can uk's cases to death looks bad there's probably a lot but we're not testing yeah so if that makes sense yeah there yeah. are fewer confounding variables but there's still a lot like is it going to be attributed to covid the death is it where are the deaths taking place to be counted all those kind of things so exactly also exactly. there are probably so many people that just haven't been tested that had it mm-hmm 
because oh, definitely. it affects people very mildly in many cases, doesn't it? And even asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that kind of you could, good point to bring in the UK actually, because so if that's kind of the suppression um, aspect. And if we're thinking about mitigation, the UK actually started out looking at this mitigation approach. So the general idea mitigation wise is that you're still putting in some measures to slow things down, but you're letting your kind of, it's, it's the same idea as the vaccination thing. You're trying to build herd immunity, but in this case, you're doing that by letting people get the actual disease. While protecting the most vulnerable people. Exactly. Exactly. So assuming that yeah, most of the cases are mild or asymptomatic, as you were saying, and then letting it build up through the population and protecting those who would suffer the most. Um, so, yeah, so with the UK, so they started out with that mitigation tactic, um, which is why we didn't, didn't necessarily see the full lockdown right from the beginning. Um, but then there was a paper that came out by, it was Imperial College London, I think, that started to look at projections based on that mitigation approach for the UK. Um, and it was pretty damning, wasn't it, David? And they swapped afterwards. Yeah, yeah. so they were um, modelling on what they thought was going to happen with minimal intervention. And they thought the model showed that over 500,000 UK deaths in the UK would occur and if the US took a similar kind of minimal approach, there'll be 2.2 million deaths. So that spurred everyone on to kind of think, oh God, this isn't nice. right, let's change it up. And what did you say UK was on at the moment, Rob? 12,000? 18,000. It's jumping up quick. I mean, it's not the 500,000 that David's just quoted, but it's serious numbers. So yeah, so they, yeah. So they then, based on this paper, um, they then swapped from a this mitigation to the suppression which is when the full lockdown came in it's worth noting at this point that when that paper came out so what rob you were talking about people who get very mild symptoms or even asymptomatic which means no symptoms um when that paper came out they thought that kind of 33 percent of people were asymptomatic so one in three but they now think it's more like 50 to 80 percent and basically the more people that are asymptomatic the more effective that mitigation tactic is because you will reach herd immunity with less people being affected by the disease if that makes sense sure. so that they obviously based on what the data was at the time and that's changed slightly um but the interesting thing with the uk swapping to that then suppression tactic is they obviously went for the full lockdown but didn't do the test and trace and i mm. think this has become apparent with a lot of other countries so italy spain where that it's starting to flatten the curve, but the effectiveness without the tests and trace is just nowhere near what we saw with those Asian countries and obviously speed of response and a lot of other factors come into that as well, but it definitely seems to be a key thing. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? That did they just have different information to hand or more information or like more preparedness? I don't, you know, what, what set them apart that much more, um, well, this I mean, I approach, know. this approach was the kind of uh, World Health Organization recommended approach for previous pandemics. So it's what had been used for Ebola, SARS, and MERS, and they were very effective because it stopped um, stopped them spreading too far. But the disease profile was a little bit different, so there weren't quite so many um, subclinical cases, people without any um, uh, symptoms at all. 
so it made it a bit easier to kind of track and trace people whereas this it's a little bit harder and i think but it was the tactic one of the other things we haven't touched on that seems there's a lot of discussion about it is countries healthcare systems themselves and how important that is to have yeah. a how important that is to have a cohesive national healthcare system to be able to implement these things quickly and efficiently because the speed is so important. And they say places like Taiwan and South Korea, which I had no idea, apparently do have exceptional national healthcare. Um, and it is kind of a government-led, government-run thing. And it's one of the things we see in America, why they're struggling so much. Their healthcare system is so fractured and compartmented that trying to fight, get data from all the places, let alone kind of push stuff out and make people do stuff in the same ways, very very difficult for them so that is another factor as well um which is also the case for sweden which is the next example we're going to look at um because they are kind of the only people really um doing this mitigation tactic the only people left doing this mitigation tactic so we've said it's about trying to get herd immunity which actually the swedish government say they're not trying to do but Okay, but the other aspect of it, obviously the other reason for doing suppression is to stop the healthcare system being overwhelmed, right? Yeah. So the problem with the mitigation tactic, and this is what the UK were thinking, is that if this happens and too many people get it, then it's going to overrun the healthcare system. And then obviously you're looking at much more deaths than you could because you can't treat those people properly. So Sweden have looked at this and basically they've kind of spun it on its head and said, okay, we'll stick to mitigation, but we'll just increase our capacity, our intensive care capacity, our capacity to treat patients. So they've supposedly increased their intensive care capacity threefold. Plus they have one of the best functioning healthcare systems in the world, apparently. Um, so I think that kind of is one of the reasons why, despite them not doing the full lockdown and you see these articles about people out and they're sitting outside in the spring sun in their cafes and going to restaurants and all this stuff um why they haven't the deaths isn't that much but where where's where is sweden's deaths at rob what's it saying so look they're just under two thousand deaths they've had um 170 new deaths in the last day um we're 763 new deaths so they're still you know fairly under control. Their cases are 16,000, whereas ours is over 100,000. Where they've come under a lot of criticism is comparing to their neighbours. So in terms of per capita or per million, so their fatality rate is 131 per million people, whereas mm. Denmark's 55 and Finland's 14. And both of those countries have adopted lockdowns, unlike Sweden. So... So yeah, they're, they're not performing as well. And I think one of the other reasons they said they've taken this strategy is a kind of cultural reason that they believe more in nudging behaviors and leaving it up to the individual rather than a state-governed response. And they see themselves as a kind of responsible society that are very well educated, which they are, but they're, they don't actually have current laws that allow geographical lockdowns and they they leave it on the citizens themselves to kind of stop the spread of the disease. So I guess we're, I guess we're comparing, you say we're comparing the deaths, Sweden's deaths and therefore effectiveness to its neighboring countries there. 
I guess if we take it back to the original analogy of if you're, the mitigation is doing it at 40 miles an hour and therefore you're expecting more deaths, Sweden being slightly higher isn't necessarily a sign that their tactic isn't working right. It's just that they're going for a different approach and there'll be slightly more deaths, but their economy will be less hard hit and perhaps they'll, they'll kind of reach herd immunity quicker, right? Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, there's still, I don't think it was ever their aim to have more deaths and I'm not too sure yeah. what their economic impact is. And it's, it's true. So I was um, reading an interview that one of the top Swedish epidemiologists is advising the government was saying that they don't think their strategy is a failure and that any increase in deaths that they've had compared to other countries has been a failure in implementing the strategy. So They've had most of their increase in deaths compared to Denmark and Finland have been um, in the older population and care homes. Yeah, and yeah. they think it's more about people not doing the um, like hand washing or proper measures in care homes rather than it being their overall strategy. Because it's interesting. I mean, if they, they, have, they are not publicly admitting they're going for this strategy, are they? But if they are, and it's easy to say when it's just number of deaths, but obviously even every single death is pretty impactful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not saying that it's drastically different to everyone else. I think they've admitted that they are definitely being lighter touch to it, but their idea is that everyone's going to aim and get to herd immunity one way or another, and this is their way of doing it within yeah. the Swedish cultural uh, norms. Because the other, obviously, the thing we haven't really brought into the equation right now, especially talking about herd immunity, is if you're going for the suppression tactic, I guess you're hoping that you'll reach herd immunity via vaccination, which, as we've said in previous episodes, is like at least 18 months off, right? Yeah, exactly. Or that you lower the, um, flatten the curve so much that you can kind of keep uh, dealing with it. So I guess that, yeah, they're not going to have too much immunity at all in those countries. So at some point when they uh, um, lighten all the restrictions, then you're going to get a second wave. So then mm-hmm. they'll have to do everything again. They'll have to do the track and test and trace all so, over again and then until they build it up much more slowly. Do you think that there's a chance that that's what might happen with Germany then? Because so far, you know, they've had a pretty high case ratio, ratio but not a death ratio. And um, I've always wondered, well, I have really been wondering why that is. And I know that they're going to start easing restrictions soon. Isn't that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had the same question with Germany in terms of why is there, why are the cases so high and deaths so low? And I think part of the reason is what we were talking about earlier in terms of, because they are, and I was going to include them earlier, actually, when we we're talking about test and trace, Germany of all the European countries has had the most effective, uh, done the most tests, had the most effective testing regimen. And as we were saying, the more tests you do, the more cases you have, just because you know about them. Um, so the, the ratio to deaths looks better um, I think would be one of the reasons yeah that, exactly uh, know anything else well no exactly that will be it's a very important question and it's one that's going to be impossible to answer until you get more more information because it could be that they were just inherently as a cu- country more uh, less likely to have deaths that they had a better healthcare system or their population um, demographics or where people are living are different or it could be exactly like you said that just because they have so much wider spread testing that they're catching all these subclinical cases where people aren't really at risk 
and so it just looks mm-hmm. like they're doing much better and mm. also because I, I read did read an article on it and even thinking about what david just said in terms of sweden's reasons why they've still got deaths and it's because people aren't following the protocol in nursing homes i, I did read an article that and without getting too political because that's not our domain it was saying that in germany there is kind of the trust in the government is very good mm. and that's another thing that i've seen is quite key is trust in the government because that way without the kind of draconian measures you can trust people to do as the government says if they trust them they'll they'll implement those measures which is could possibly be another important point mm-hmm. yeah and i guess that's kind of sweden have been trusting their citizens in a certain way that they don't want to do anything put any kind of too tight regulations down exactly and that so so if we i think that kind of those are the kind of main examples of like the suppression and mitigation things but there's a few other interesting countries doing interesting things obviously number one we've mentioned them briefly is the us um which late to the party but have now flown into the the lead in terms of cases haven't they and it's it's looking at reading into them is challenging because I think what we were saying about the healthcare system, what I said about the healthcare in terms of it's kind of compartmentalized, it's difficult to have a cohesive action is exactly the same with the way the countries run. They seem initially anyway, the government let to the states, obviously it's such a big place, the government let the states make the decisions on what kind of measures they put in. So some states went kind of full lockdown. I think New York's been obviously one of the most affected is going to be pretty full lockdown but other states haven't done much at all rapid i i read a interesting thing about how california's managed the situation really well by going straight in suppression after they had their first death really yeah i think it's something like their projected potential deaths is um was like about 10 times higher than their actual deaths because of the response that they've they've uh, chosen and they they because they kind of you saw examples when it was kind of first starting in other countries going lockdown and then you were seeing pictures from american spring break and they're just mm-hmm. be- beaches filled of them partying which is now kind of coming back to bite them and then obviously another factor that's been thrown into the mix is leadership in terms of how countries respond and donald trump's leadership is obviously questionable in many ways <laughs> but the statement <laughs> is so i don't want to get political i don't no. want to get political but <laughs> just his obviously the states are kind of doing their own thing and then seemingly donald trump's up there doing these briefings where he just i mean i don't know if you've listened to any of them but they don't make any sense mm, what he no, says doesn't make any sense he just kind of he'll just suddenly be like but i'm popular or something like that and you're like well yeah. what does that have to do with it so his policies say one thing and then his tweets go directly against them saying that you should protest against the lockdown measures and so it's no one's getting any clear leadership or direction and what what do do they always tell you at work uh under promise overachieve he basically does the opposite doesn't he 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 will kind of big up any slight success and brush over anything else that looks bad so he he blames it on the previous government doesn't he and then he overclaims royally Mm. well interestingly as well not even the other government he blames world health organization's response and has since removed their funding which is people are saying that's just a political move to try and divert the attention as well as 
calling it the Chinese virus and stuff. Um, so their response has been, but it'll be interesting to see what happens in the US, I think. Yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed. Um, but right now it's not looking great. Overall, I think for me reading stuff, it seems fairly clear that those Asian countries that were prepared in advance and who have done um, test and trace have responded best. And Rob's numbers seem to show that. So I think if you started it all again, in my eyes, that seems like the best option. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That sounds... Absolutely, yeah. And the question is, it seems pretty clear that that is the best approach. And for those countries, it's worked very well. The question, I guess, is culturally, economically, et cetera, is it possible to do the exact same approach in mm -hmm. Western countries, African countries, South American countries? There's obviously a lot of barriers to doing it the exact same way, which is why I guess you open up the question and why, as David was saying, Sweden's gone for their approach. Part of their reason is cultural. So it's, it's interesting to see if it would work. And I mean, the whole thing's interesting. It's literally like having a live experiment across the world. It's terrifying, but it's interesting at the same time. Um, so I think, I don't know, given, given this conversation, Rob, if you, if we were to put you in the uh, shoes of the, we've just, this is, this is your briefing. We've just given you your briefing. You're the Swedish, you're the Swedish prime minister. You've been going with your tactic. Do you carry on going with the tactic knowing that, more people might die, but you might come out of it quicker and better off economically. Or do you start swapping to either what other European countries are doing, full lockdown, or trying to push the test and trace? What's your direction? Good question. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think it, from this conversation, it's clear to me the importance of test and trace. Um, and that can help inform policy making a lot more. I think that's probably one of the biggest problems that the UK has been facing is that they don't have that testing and tracing to inform their decision making quite as much. Yeah. And so the safest option seemingly is, like you say, putting it back to 10 miles an hour. So in an ideal world, I would probably push testing and tracing. Um, but there's no chance that I'm prioritizing the economy over, yeah, yeah. over the health of the population for sure. Um, I can't help but feel that they have been too um, maybe relaxed in their mm. approach. Um, I would want to. I would want to bring in some kind of restraint. Yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed. They haven't been too relaxed, but you do get that feeling slightly, don't you? Mm. And you, you said on the UK testing. You were saying in the briefing this morning, they they've got the testing promise. David, what's their, what's Hancock's testing promise? Well, he was aiming for 100,000 tests by the end of this month, but they're nowhere near that figure at the moment. And really? it's been widely criticised as being a completely arbitrary number that he's had to kind of come up with because of the pressure he's been under for this lack mm -hmm. of response that we've had and it hasn't been timely enough. So it's just, it feels like it's just a, yeah, an arbitrary number plucked out that seems large. And also the... It's really a bit too late because we yeah. how everything's spread. It's still, like you said, it'll be interesting to have testing and it'll be useful to kind of monitor things and change your, um, or change the timing and perhaps relaxing um, the lockdown. But really it has the biggest effects right at the beginning when you can actually track and trace the very few people who've got it, isolate yeah. them and prevent any of this from happening to begin with. 
I think for me now, having talked about it, if you've gone for the Swedish approach, you're kind of hoping that there's not going to be, with the lockdown approach, you, you know, you acknowledge there's going to be second and third waves, right? I guess Sweden are hoping there's not going to be those waves. For me, if in the UK's situation now, you lock down to get that first wave down to 10 miles an hour and as many, little deaths as possible. In the meantime, you build up the capacity to test and trace so that when the second wave comes, you can respond like yeah. the Asian countries did. Exactly, that, yeah. That to me seems the most logical response for those countries who've left it too late for the first yeah. wave because I don't think test and trace, as David says, I don't think test and trace can bring you back. But if you lock down and prepare for the second wave, I think that would be my way to do things now. Yeah. But that, I think, seems like a good place to leave it, lads, unless you've got any other last bits to add. I think that's it. I think it seems no, no, like no, a a nice conclusion but hopefully we've kind of presented everything that's out there and in an understandable way but people listening obviously we want to hear your points of view if you completely disagree if you agree anything we've missed if you enjoyed our earwigging exactly exactly <laughs> so yeah get in contact on the emails a team at sickofhealth.co.uk and then we're on twitter as well at sick of health or just message one of us and uh, obviously as we said We'll do a topic week and then next week we'll do a kind of catch up and questions so we can look at them all then. But that was thoroughly interesting, lads. Thank you very much. I yeah, really enjoyed it. And um, Prime Minister Rob Littlewood, Swedish Prime Minister, has got a stunning <laughs> career ahead of him. <laughs> <laughs> all right, chaps, thank you very much and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Sick, so sick, so sick of hell.